wine industry business trends. Welcome back, Rob McMillan from Silicon Valley Bank. Um, your presentations are always enlightening and interesting, and we look forward to more of the same. Dazzle us. Well, <laughs> well thank you, and happy uh, summer solstice uh, to everybody. I think that's what we call it, right? It's, I think it's the longest day of the year. Yes. Which is wonderful. Thank the Lord. I, li I like these kind of days. We'll pull up, uh, pull up my presentation in a second. So let's see, what else do I have to talk about? Ah, I know. I know. Um, so I should say that I'm Rob McMillan and 1163 Broadmoor Drive, Napa, California. And uh, the earthquake fault line went under my neighbor's house, and my road still needs to be fixed. <laughs> so who's ever out there listening, if you would <clears throat> please uh, address that problem, I would appreciate it. Um, Duly noted. <laughs> Duly noted. Thank you. Duly noted. Uh, so here's who I am that, that uh, people can read another time. So uh, we do a, a survey um, a couple times a year. Um, one of the things we do is a, a state of the industry survey that we do in November. We do another survey in typically February, March time frame where we, we look at direct consumer sales. And um, in, in this one survey, this is the state of the industry survey in November, we use uh, a survey methodology, a little bit like the, the Michigan Consumer Sentiment Index, where we ask simple questions of, do each of these categories, uh, did they favor you or disfavor you? I guess that's the right way to say it, or, or are you neutral? Then you, you add up the, the results and, and this is what you end up with. <clears throat> so when we look through things right now, the things that are a concern to the wine industry as a whole, um, the economy is, looking pretty good. Uh, generally speaking, the, the wine community thinks demand is, is pretty good. Sales channels, supply, all pretty good. Labor is a, a big issue. Um, we have a, a problem with both, both in Napa County with uh, both harvest labor um, and with uh, finding adequate uh, uh, taste room staff. And then uh, foreign competition is a, uh, a big issue. Um, I think one that will continue to emerge. And then substitutions like um, legalized cannabis and, um, and, and spirits, craft spirits are, are a concern. Those are the things that at least concern the industry. Um, I have my own opinion whether or not they're right or not. Uh, some, of them, some of them I think are reasonably uh, things to concern about. And I think there are some things that they have, the industry generally neglects to see. And we'll talk about some of those today. Um, so let's start off with the big picture, which is U.S. wine sales. So if we, if we go back from a long period of time, you can say, generally speaking, the, the wine industry looks more or less uh, recession resistant, um, with the exception of that one little recession that we had in the 2007 or so time frame. Um, we had, we've had pretty, pretty good and straight up uh, uh, sales volumes increases over a long period of time until we got to this spot here recently where sales volumes have actually started to flatten out. And that speaks to a few things, but one of them is, is the change in consumer dynamics that we're starting to, to, um, to find. And we'll talk a little bit about those in a second. Uh, first though, I think the best thing to talk about is how we got here. Um, how did we go from an industry, you know, back in the 70s that was uh, small? I, matter of fact, I remember I, I saw a, um, a news clip uh, from, uh, I think it was KRON, and it's in uh, University of San Francisco archives. And it was talking about the, the industry and, 
and we had Brother Timothy on there. We had a very young Michael Mandavi on there being interviewed about um, about whether or not people were going to start charging tasting room fees. And uh, it was interesting to I me. Mean, they called it admission. Should, should, we, should we charge admission? And, and the answer was, well, we're thinking about it. So certainly we've evolved past that. But what are the things that have, that have caused this evolution? So if we look back into the early 80s, um, that was kind of the end of the mature generation's run of uh, the two martini lunch. The, the mature generation, uh, my parents effectively, um, I'm a boomer, and my parents, uh, they were into more beer and spirits, and, and wine was more of an afterthought, and it was generic wine typically. Uh, during the period of time from the, the middle 80s up until um, the early 90s, we had this neo-prohibitionism where a bunch of different factors started to collide, uh, mothers against drunk driving, increase of, of legalized drinking age and, and such. Um, and that started to drive down um, sales of wine um, and wineries naturally had to go find new ways to, to get sales. So it was really at that point where we started to see wine clubs start to take off as, as a viable source of revenue. Um, sales overall were shrinking. You know, we're not used to that. It's been, a, it's been a long time. Really, 94 was the bottom of that. Um, and we started to flip that around as the boomer hit 35. I, I always say the, the, the greatest consuming era, and I think it's consistently proven out, is 35 to 55. That's, I don't care what, what you call yourself, whether you're a millennial or a boomer or Gen X, it's 35 to 55 is where you end up spending most of your money. When you're 35, you're in your new career. Maybe you're, uh, you can pay a little bit ahead on, on things with credit. Um, spend a little bit ahead. When you get to 55, you start slowing down. You start thinking about retirement, putting your, your money maybe toward other things. Um, so that's the big era of spending. And, and in, in fact, this, this growth ramp that we've gone through um, is really boomer-driven uh, from that 35 to 55-year year period. And in, in the early 90s, we ended up with a grape shortage. Matter of fact, we had what we called truncated sales back then. If we had more wine to sell, we would have, but we just didn't have any way to get more grapes. Um, what we ended up doing is planting a lot of a lot of vineyards, and you know, as as is typical, we ended up with an overplanting at, at a point. The wholesalers at that point came to all the fine wine producers, all the small family wine producers, and said, "For God's sakes, you know, we're here. We want to sell your wine." And you know, largely the wine industry seems to come to it with the notion of, "Look, I've got really cool grapes." and I'm gonna make the world's best fill in the blank. And, um, okay, well, what's your sales strategy? I got a really cool grapes and, <laughs> you know, and, and, and sales strategy ends up being pretty important. So the wholesalers, when they started knocking on doors, the, the wine industry answered wholeheartedly. And for that one period of time, up until about 2000, the dominant competitive issue was really could you make good wine? If you made good wine, it sold itself pretty much. You could just sit on the, on the porch and rock. So for, for wine producers, that was a particularly good time. And we really didn't see that much growth in, in wine club activity. Everything kind of sold itself till we hit 2000. And right at there, we end up with, with uh, grape excess. We end up with a tech recession at the same time in 9-11. And the distributors woke up and said, well, gosh, now we have too much inventory. We went through this huge growth phase in, the, in that 90s period where we, we added a lot of acreage and a lot of wineries um, all at the same time. And as often the case with agriculture, we kind of overdid that and um, 
and at, the, at when we hit this this point in time, distributors looked back and they said, "Boy, we can't represent this many brands. It's just too hard," and they started to pull back. Uh, fortunately for the wine business, and right around that same period, internet shopping, uh, right probably around 2001. Remember, that's the the tech recession, 2001, 2002, something like that. We actually had shopping carts, so e-commerce became at least somewhat viable at that point. And then uh, more so, I think it was 2005, 2006, somewhere in that time frame, Gramhold decision um, allowed a lot of the interstate shipping. And by the way, if anybody has questions that you want to interrupt me, feel free. I'm just, I'm just rambling. Um, wholesalers consolidated through this whole period. What ended up happening was uh, all of the, the, the big box retailers, they, they grew and the wholesalers, in order to service those guys, had to create more of a of a uniform offering to those to those uh, customers of theirs. And so, not only do they leave the small wineries, um, their consolidation um, also played important impacts. And in fact, that really ended up accelerating direct sales because that's really all you could do. And so, let's let's put that into into some numbers. So, in 1995. Uh, in the U.S., we had 2,600 wineries. I don't remember exactly how many we had in Napa at that point. I'm going to guess, what, maybe 200, something like that. Um, in uh, 95, we had 3,000 distributors. In 2016, we have 9,000 wineries, and we have 700 distributors. So you can see the drop in distributors and the increase in wineries. They're, they're going inversely, and so obviously the ratios. 1.15 distributor per winery in 1995 makes the knocking on the door more often. And by the time you get to 2016, you got 0.08 distributors. That's not 0.8, that's 0.08 distributors. So distributors have largely um, fallen apart as a viable chain. And they don't really do, uh, for the small family wineries anyway, they don't really do uh, brand building. If, if you are a winery and you can create demand in a marketplace somewhere in the U.S., um, then they will, in fact, um, handle the logistics and, and take their cut. Um, that's, that's the way that works. And I don't think we should blame the distributors for being bad people. They're business people, and they're making rational business decisions. Um, and that means the, the small wineries, in order to survive, are going to have to make similar rational decisions. And like I said, thank goodness for, for Granholm and direct sales. And if you look at direct sales right now, this is a... Um, uh, this is a chart of direct sales as a percent of total sales for an average winery. And what you can see from 2012 to 2016, a, a, pretty, a pretty quick growth from 49% to 59% of, of total wine sales. The other thing that's happening right now is we're seeing restaurant sales for those small wineries drop as, as the small wineries in Napa um, lose out on distribution. Um, you don't find them in, in Hilton Hotel as an example. Um, you know, it ends up being maybe more of a constellation menu. And when you go down the, the bar menu, you find all the different constellation brands that are, that are locked into. And that's just part of the strength of, of distribution. Um, and so, again, our, you know, the small wineries have a harder, a harder time. Napa is in a better spot because of it's really it's the pinnacle brand um, in the United States easily, and it's one of the top brands in the world, um, just as a luxury brand. But overall, 
uh, restaurant sales are dropping, the opportunity to sell in restaurants are dropping. Yeah, Ian. I, I had a question about this slide, and maybe this goes back to your um, that um, concern about substitutions. Is, the, is this um, graph intended to show that people just aren't buying wine in restaurants, alcohol in restaurants, or what's the... Yeah, good question. Um, so there's two, there's two sides to it. Um, this is a, a chart from our survey that shows what the average winery sells as a percentage of their sales into restaurants. Into restaurants. That's a separate question from what's happening with wine sales in restaurants. Mm -hmm. And the answer to that second question is um, right now it's either flat or down. And if you look at same-store sales across the United States, restaurant sales of wine are either flat or down. Can I ask a quick question? Please. Um, nice to meet you. <laughs> I read a little bit about you last night, and Good I to actually be met. thank you. Um, read uh, some an interview. I think you did. You did uh, was you know the industry or something, and um, I think you mentioned something about uh, red wine sales actually being up in restaurants. Is that true? Yeah. So um, I'm I'm privy to some information that I probably shouldn't be. Uh, but that's what you get when you have a lot of contacts and friends. <laughs> and and uh, of all of the, the wines that are sold, uh, if you look at a trailing 12 months uh, trend, all of them are down in restaurants with the exception of red blends. Red blends are up slightly. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Um, so this is what we're seeing right now in terms of the opportunity for um, the, the Napa Valley wineries largely to be in restaurants. They're, they just don't have that same opportunity to sell into restaurants that they did before because of consolidation largely. Um, and so this is this is what we're happening, but it's also an industry problem, and to your, your uh, observation is that, yes, in fact, restaurant sales, for many, many reasons, are, are struggling. So this is a chart of the split out of direct sales. It, it, you know, it turns out it's about 59% uh, of sales are direct to consumer with the remaining being uh, wine fulfilled through wholesale and distribution. So when you look at this, what you're, what you're noticing is that the wine club represents about 46%. And today the, the real way to make money to sell wine in a winery is you start off with a tasting room. And so if you see down in the bottom section, the, the dark blue, visitor center tasting room, that's that's 31% of revenue. So here we're talking about people that are just coming in and, and buying a bottle, they're paying tasting fees, but it's all, it's all wine purchases. And then the idea for the people that are working in the hospitality is to actually get those people into the wine club. You want them in the wine club, and ideally what you're tracking is the lifetime value of that person. How long are they gonna stay in the wine club? And, and you know, what, that's, what, what is that going to mean? And if you look at the rest of it, um, and again, this is just direct sales. So, you know, if you want to do the, the, the ugly math and just say it's 50, it's 50, it's not, it's 60, 40. But, but if you wanted to do the ugly math, you could say, well, internet and web sales, that's people that are actually going on your winery site's uh, web and, and buying wine directly. Um, um, and internet, that's 13%. So it's really uh, more like 40% of that number. So let's just say... Uh, Six, six percent, something like that, total sales. So it's a very small number, the stuff that actually happens on the web. Um, events, on-site and off-sites, are a small percentage. Um, but again, that ends up being part of the wine club 
component. If, you, if you're going to have a wine club, you're going to have to sell something beyond a bottle of wine. We're not selling chemicals. We're selling an experience. It's a luxury experience of some sort. And, and most people choose to, uh, to support that. Uh, I hate to use the term authenticity, but that because it's so overused. But they, they want to use that, you know, the, the winery to show that it's authentic so that when you're in Safeway, as an example, and you see a bottle, you don't know if that's a made-up brand from a blend of a thousand grapes from anywhere or if it's actually something. And, and I think the new consumers especially uh, value that knowledge of, of something being uh, created from a real place. They want to know where their ingredients came from. You, want, you know, we talk more about natural and... Um, and those kind of things when it comes to the, the younger generation. So this is what we have right now for for the, the split out of direct sales. Obviously, it's it's uh, going back. It's it's actually let's see if I can go backwards. There we go. It's obviously uh, critical. Now it's we've gone from about twenty percent in the in that early ninety period that we were talking about earlier to fifty nine sixty percent now of total sales are direct. So it's. It's not a matter of want, it's a matter of survival. And without that, it's, it's really death. It doesn't, doesn't work, the model does not work without it. So here's, here's some good news. Um, when we look at what's happening with, with wine as a whole, premiumization is a term that, uh, that has been bandied around. Um, I don't know that you're gonna find it in the Urban Dictionary even, but, uh, but it's out there. And the, you know, the idea is, is consumers are trading up. But it's, it's not so much consumers are trading up, it's, and we'll talk a little bit more about it. It's the average consumer, which spans, you know, my mom, uh, you know, down to the, you know, 21-year-old. And with my mom's generation, the matures, you know, edging out, they have a tendency to continue to drink uh, the wines that they were used to, the, the generic wines and such. Boomers started to drink better. The, younger, the youngest generation is, uh, really understands what good is. And so we have more people that are that understand good wine. And, and so when you look at this now, what you see is uh, total sales, whether they're uh, sales of wines made domestically or uh, or foreign, but total total wines sold in the U.S. from well this zero to two ninety nine is the top one, but I haven't bought as a zero dollar wine yet, so I don't know how to do that. <laughs> but um, but zero to eight ninety nine is. Figure up nine dollars and and below, um, kind of dropping like a stone. Uh, growth rates dropping, and the change in growth rates dropping, the shares dropping. Um, it's it's just it's a, a difficult place to be. And then when you move from that and you start to look at the above nine dollars uh, segment and and certainly the the above twenty dollars segment uh, for the Napa Valley is the one you you really want to look at. Um, all of those growth rates are, are positive and, and doing quite well. So that, that bodes well for the industry. My belief is that in order to buy a good Napa Valley wine, you gotta have both the desire, that's a brand component, and you gotta have the capacity, that's an economic component. Now the question is, is do you have either or both of those? You have to have both. Looking at what's happening with uh, imports, if you look at the growth rate of imports, uh, domestic is still a little bit ahead of, of imports, but uh, right now the French are, are importing a lot of rosé that's going into lower price uh, segment wines. Um, the New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc, uh, another one that is uh, 
generally a little bit higher priced uh, than the, some of the Sauvignon Blancs that we see, but but that's got a very strong growth rate. Uh, Italian Pinot Grigio um, is is growing that category, and Spanish is is plus or minus, um, you know, in that uh, in that growth range too. They they sometimes they show up plus, sometimes they show up minus, but. Uh, the Spanish are another uh, uh, premium wine that has uh, very good value. Um, looking at the other wines, what we see is Chile, uh, Chile Argentina, and uh, Australia kind of share a similar thing in that they've they've sold too, man, too much inexpensive bulk uh, and uh, generic wine, and so they struggle a little bit with their branding at this point. And so you, you see the same thing from a worldwide standpoint. When we talk about premiumization, it's not just a domestic thing. It's a world thing. So this is uh, looking at growth. Cabernet is uh, driving varietal growth today, and that's that's a good thing for Napa. So when you look at uh, this chart, you can see this is, by the way, this is growth in sales from IRI. And so in order to even be on this chart, you have to have, it's this isn't like total sales. This is, you had to have one more dollar of sales this year than last year, right? So this is just the growth component. And when you look at this chart, um, what you see first, just from a, a varietal standpoint, is Cabernet is, is king. That's a good thing for Napa. Um, red blends, which are a dominant category, which you'll see in a second. Red blends are, are the notion that you can take wine that is, let's just say, uh, Merlot, Syrah, Zinfandel, throw it into, into a, a bottle, call it something, and sell it. Um, and red blends have really taken off. The other, the other dominant category you, you see a lot of uh, now is uh, is boxed wine, um, um, and, and you know boxed wine has a, a little bit of a premium uh, to it simply because the the packaging costs are, are reduced. So you can have this premium boxed wine that actually is is uh, taken off and doing quite well as as well. So red blends doing well behind uh, behind Cabernet, and then Pinot Noir also also doing quite well. Um, probably from a, a couple of different places, but um, but Oregon Pinot Noir is one that stands out. Um, I forgot why I put that red line on it. Maybe. <laughs> I had a yeah, go ahead. About the units, though, those are labeled glass rather than bottle. Are we? T is that? Yeah, it's bottles. It's bottles. Okay. Yeah, yeah, and then the bottom one is box. Okay. Yeah. Um, so this ends up being difficult to understand because when you're when you're looking across, let's say the dark blue. First of all, it's hard to see dark blue from lighter blue. But when you're lock, looking across, let's just say the yellow category. That's the eight to eleven dollar glass. It's, it's kind of hard to to compare those two. So I separated out that chart. There's nice and Sauvignon Blanc. There's some other arrows that I put in this, but I forgot about. <laughs> um, so here's here's a heat map of of this, that same chart. So you can you can I think this is easier way to see it. So this is the 11 to $15 bottle <laughs> glass category. And, and what you can see um, on the left side of the screen where it says this Chardonnay Cabernet Sauvignon. So Cabernet Sauvignon um, uh, at that, that 54 uh, million right there, um, that's, the, that's the, you know, the dominant growth spot in that. But if you, if you look at this section here, red blends. This is this is really what we're we're telling our young consumers to drink right now. So we're taking it away from the notion of uh, it being a varietal like Cabernet um, into being something else that is defined by the producer. 
So it's a, it's a really interesting thing to me because on the one hand, uh, by the way, uh, Gallo um, has the the the, um, the dominant, uh, and I'm drawing a blank on the name for some reason. Same, not prisoner. Um, Apothic red. There we go. Yeah, Apothic red. If you, if you haven't tried Apothic red and you're interested, it's about nine dollars. You can buy it at Trader. Pardon me at uh, at. Um, Target. There we go. Where it escaped me, you, uh, and I and I tried it, and, and it's it's an interesting wine. It's it's pretty well made. It's not great, but it's a really good on ramp for a young consumer, and that's what's really spinning that growth up. That, these are the fingerprints that we see of this oncoming consumer, but they're buying inexpensive. Here's Pinot Grigio, uh, Pinot Grigio that's coming out a lot of it out of uh, Italian or uh, Italy. Excuse me, Pinot Noir. Uh, again, I think the the twenty dollar and above, that's probably more from uh, from Oregon. Uh, so Blanc, that's coming out of New Zealand. And so imports are, are making a difference. Some of the ones that we haven't seen for a while, uh, you know, Merlot, Moscato, and Riesling, they're at the bottom of the list. But, you know, whatever happened to Syrah and Zinfandel, right? Mm-hmm. And so the answer to that is red blends. Red blends now, the, the consumer has lost track of Zinfandel, which is sad to me because I love Zinfandel. Um, and Zinfandel now goes into a red blend. Uh, the, these good, good wine companies can figure out where to get excellent lots of, uh, you know, Zinfandel or Merlot or Syrah, which are undervalued. Um, but the consumer doesn't have an idea what those really taste like because they're planted in so many different places um, that there's just no consistency. Uh, unlike Napa Cabernet, unlike New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc, that actually have a, a definition so the consumer can easily get their, their mind wrapped around it. So that's that's also helping that um, push that red blend craze. Let's talk about generational changes. Um, and one of the things I'm speaking about right now is we're not going to be able to win by doing it the same way that we got here. What, what happened before, um, you can't repeat and have, have things work out again. So here's the projection of U.S. net household wealth up to 2030 and you know my belief set was that boomers in this period of time ought to be dying out and their and their wealth ought to be going with them but surprisingly uh, boomers have 50 percent of the wealth today and by 2030 the projection is that they'll have 45 percent of the wealth so boomers aren't going away there's going to be a long long tail on that um, in terms of their uh, their life expectancy and their ability to hold wealth Income is a different thing. When they hit retirement and they live on a fixed income, that does change dynamics. When you look at Gen X, 14% now, but they're going to 31%. They have a, a level of wealth that they've established before the Great Recession, and those assets will mature in value. And, and so Gen X, in a lot of ways, looks very similar to boomers, in my opinion. When you, when you look at millennials, however, 4% of, of net household wealth and you know projected to be 16%. So it's a disadvantaged... Uh, consumer class, really. Um, you know, they've ended up getting the, getting the raw end of the deal. Uh, probably uh, not, not as bad as the uh, the mature generation that had to actually go through the Great Recession and then, uh, you know, actually Prohibition before that and World War II after that, and then they started their careers in their 40s. So those guys really really had the raw deal. But but uh, the young the young kids, uh, you know, coming out of school, they didn't get jobs. Um, and so a lot of things are delayed in the way that they uh, make the way that they actually 
uh, become uh, consumers now. So they get married later. It's the one thing. They have children later. Uh, they have fewer children. Um, um, they buy later. They have more student debt. Student debt's a big, a big drag on, on their earnings. They're borrowing ahead to, uh, to get these college educations. So this is the impact of, of all of the decisions that we've made as a, as a people. And our, our kids are going to have to support me while I'm, while I'm in my retirement. And, um, and they don't have quite the same opportunity. And um, the reality is that they're, they're just never going to move out. So they're just going to they're, they're wait, wait till I die and then take over the house is what they're, they're going to do. As they say, you know, the, this generation right now is they don't own anything that's the borrowing generation. They, have, they borrow Uber. Uh, they borrow songs instead of an LP record, right? I mean, they, everything's borrowed. It's, it's all digital and, and borrowed. And they, they share. As a matter of fact, when you see them in tasting rooms, they share tasting fees. That's, that's the, the nature. And so I thought I'd, pu I'd put all of that last story into a few pictures. So mm -hmm. here's 2000 um, and uh, a young couple um, that's out to dinner and they're obviously infatuated with each other. And the guy says back in 2000, <laughs> you can't find this wine anywhere. This is a Parker 97 rated wine. It's $95 a bottle. And she's just looking at him whimsically and she says, I'm going to rush home and tell mom, I think I found the one. <laughs> and then you go to 2008, just post-recession, and he says, isn't this a killer wine value? I got it at Costco for $15 a bottle. And she looks at him, oh, what a thrifty guy. He's the one. <laughs> and then we go to 2017. Our same guy says, isn't this an awesome Napa cab? It's $500 a bottle. And uh, obviously he's re you know recovered his earnings capability and she says he can afford that he's definitely the one and then same period next thought he says oh no she can tell I borrowed this bottle from my dad <laughs> and she says should I tell him I still live with my mother <laughs> so that's a, that's our borrowing generation but it, it, it is a disconnect, right? Because we have very expensive wine, we have very expensive real estate, and we have consumers that aren't going to be able to afford these kind of wines. So that, that does create uh, an interesting dynamic that has yet to play out for, for Napa Valley. I thought this was an interesting slide, and, it, and it's an animated GIF, so I can't stop it once I start, but just let me explain it. Um, this is a population generate a population split out into five-year increments. So each of those bars are, are, are five years. And so you can see the one on the left, a little fuzzy, it says under five. Uh, the next bar is five to nine. And then up at the top, it says population distribution by age 1950. So it starts at 1950. I think it ends in, when I start it, you'll, you'll, you'll get it, the hang of it, but it, it, I think it ends in 2030 or 40, something like that. And what you're gonna be able to see is what has actually happened with population? So here I'm going to start it now, and you'll see you'll see the number, the 1950 number, rotate through here. So here's 55, and you can see the percentage of boomer. You can see actually why boomers are called boomers because that's a that's a big population swing right there. So here's 1980, still dominating. 85. Here's 90. Now the the millennials are coming into being at this point, and here's 2005. And where is the millennial? They don't show up in terms of the population blip that boomers did. What's the population part that's growing? Look at that far 
mm-hmm. far to the right, yeah. mm-hmm. over 80. Mm-hmm. Right? There's 2050. Okay, so that's really what we're what we're dealing with is an aging population, and uh, in in my opinion, when you find boomers with wealth living on a fixed income and with failing livers, they're they're less likely to buy or drink. Um, uh, the way they used to. So I, I do expect to see changes from that generation. And I expect to see what I'm calling a, a bit of a luxury drought as we transition to these younger consumers who uh, really don't have the, the wherewithal to be able to afford wines. That said, Napa Valley is a very different spot because we'll always have the wealthy. The wealthy come in all categories, all ages, um, and, um, and wealthy people will be able to buy expensive wines. Um, and we'll get into some of the real estate aspects of that in a second. Here's what's happening right now. Today we're seeing boomers over a, over the last uh, five years dropping off in the percentage of sales. Again, this is from our survey. Um, this percentage of sales into the, into the wine club. And you can logically articulate it, this to be total sales as well, if you want, of premium wine. Matures, my mom's generation, she's... Um, she's still around, 90 years old, and um, and she actually she's actually uh, interesting to see her switch from white wine. Now she's moved in with me, and um, uh, so that's the opposite of it. the kids not moving at us now that now the parents are moving in, and uh, she's actually switched to Napa Cabernet since she's been <laughs> been living. So even at 90, you can you can switch from white wine to red wine. And you look at what's happening with millennials, they're, they're slowly increasing in, in Gen X as well. So the two growth categories are the younger generation, which is, which is normal. But it's, I think, difficult for people to understand the impact of the boomer. And Napa, is, Napa wine clubs are really kind of dominated by boomers. So if that's all true, then what's driving premiumization is a question you've got to ask yourself. You know, uh, we have modest economic growth at somewhere around 2%. Um, current administration like to push it to three. That's going to be very difficult given the fact that our population growth is just 0.7 right now. Um, and most of that ends up being from immigration, which we're trying to push back on. Um, so getting that GDP above 2% is going to be really difficult. So what this is, uh, is a chart that ran in the Wall Street Journal not too long ago by the Urban Institute. And this looks at by the way, there is no real good definition of what upper middle class is. Pew Research just ran something today, as a matter of fact, where they ask people, do they feel middle class? Do they feel upper middle class? Do they feel poor? Do they? And so they, they self-identify. I'm not sure that really is uh, a good metric way to look at it. What, what these folks have done is they've taken and they've adjusted it. So uh, you can see the growth in the upper middle class from 1980. Largely, that has to do with two-income families. Right? So we're looking at households here. And the other thing we have is we've gone from an average, I'm going to make this one up, but let's just say back in the 70s, maybe four kid families, three and a half, four and a half, something like that. I wouldn't want to have been the half kid. But, uh, but somewhere in there to, you know, we're not, we don't, maybe it's a two kid family now uh, when, you know, you get married and you have kids, if you get married. So, you know, that changes the, the dynamic of households when you have those two income families and fewer kids, that gives you more discretionary income. So upper middle class is 100 to 250,000. Uh, middle class is, is when you look at, when you add upper middle and the middle class together, we've actually grown the upper middle class. And so contrary to the narrative of, um, you know, the rich getting richer is true when you look at that upper yellow bar. Um, 
They control a, a, a large amount of, uh, of uh, assets relative to the size uh, that they, they occupy. Um, but largely the growth in middle class um, is what's driving this premiumization. And it's not just in wine, it's across multiple retail categories. Okay. Oh, there's another nice arrow, I forgot about that one. Um, when you look at what's happening in, in price points, we can see what's the, the changing price points now of both the consumer, uh, pardon me, both the boomer and the mature. So this, this arrow right here is pointing to millennial. I'm, I'm gonna call it a demand curve. It's not for economists. I know it's not a demand curve. Just roll with it for a minute. Um, uh, but this is what, what they like in terms of prices. So you can see the left side is $15 and less and to the right side is, is 69 and above. And what you can see is that, that the millennials and um, the uh, Gen X, both the two growth cohorts have a similar shaped curve. And what that's saying is that they're trading up on the one hand, but they're not yet ready to afford the, the really high end stuff yet. Which I, I think that's a really cool uh, thing about this, this chart. When you look at boomers way up here, although they are across in all categories, um, the Gen Xers are about ready to, to, to pass them in this 20 to $29 segment, probably this next year. And, and you can see in the case of the boomer, you do end up with that other thing I was talking about, which is people, people of wealth, they're still gonna spend. Um, and then if they are gonna hit this fixed income retirement, they're gonna start to spend less and they're gonna start trading down, um, at least that generation will. And obviously, you know, the same thing holds true both with the shape and the concept with the uh, mature generation. So the other, next question you have to ask, you know, in, t in terms of wine itself, we've, we've, back to that first chart that I showed about um, uh, things that people worry about, you know, cannabis, craft spirits, et cetera. Um, the young kids have, have uh, you know, they like beer and they like spirits more than wine. Um, and so, you know, why do I think that millennials are gonna end up becoming like boomers? And, and that's what I believe in terms of, in terms of their, their wine consumption. I think most, most people do evolve away from beer as a dominant category into, into uh, spirits or wine. I think that's pretty normal. And so I think, it, I think it'll continue and I've seen other research that supports it, but when you just, when you also, when you look at the development of, of the two classes, the boomers, when we started in, let's just call it the 80s, um, early 80s, uh, we had Bartles and James we, and we drank uh, beer and everything, then Bartles and James, this was our conversion into wine and then we went to White Zinfandel, a little you know, fruity, we drank a lot of that, Sutterham got very happy about that. Um, and then moved off into um, uh, Chardonnay, uh, sometimes that residual sugar in the Chardonnay that got uh, people even hooked in more. And then in the early, uh, late 80s, early 90s, we ended up with Merlot, which was easy to say. That's what people thought, you know, really that, that whole thing took off. Then we overplanted it so the consumer doesn't know what it really is anymore. Now it's hard to sell. Um, and then, you know, finally in, into Cabernet and, the, and the, the palettes have just taken off uh, since then. Millennials, instead of beer and everything, they went to good beer and everything. Uh, they know what they're, they're getting. Instead of Bartles and James, they're going Prosecco. Instead of White Zinfandel, Moscato. Instead of Chardonnay, they've gone into Sauvignon Blanc. And instead of Merlot, Red Blend. So it's a very, very similar uh, development in terms of the consumer's palate. So I, I, I still expect to see 
the same thing. I think the young consumer will have the desire. As I said, you got to have the desire and you got to have the capacity. You got to have both. And I think the millennial and the young consumer is proving out that that they will. Will they like Cabernet? Will they like Pinot? Remains to be seen. Um, you know, certainly, Oregon Pinot Noir is just taking off right now, um, and, and uh, I expect to see that continue as well. Oregon and Washington are two regions where you can get very good premium value wines. So I'll finish up with some Napa-specific benchmarks and stats. This is from the Tasting Room Survey. And if you look at um, Napa County up here, um, this is the percent of, of sales that are from the wine club, effectively the, the green bar. And from the blue bar, it's the amount of money from the visitor tasting room. And you can see that Napa actually does pretty well relative to all of the other regions in terms of their um, uh, the amount of money that they are able to get from wine clubs. I think that's that's an important measure, and it's one that they obviously want to you know continue to, to move forward on. Paso is a little bit better. I think that has something to do with um, the difficulty it is to actually get to Paso from um, from the Los Angeles area. I think that's why they're probably a little heavier. Um, but Napa Napa is the the icon probably at this point of of what you want for for this kind of a of a of a model and Sonoma is right behind. Uh, important concept. Uh, when, we, when we looked at where the visitation was coming from, um, what, what we find is it's skewed to uh, the largest respondents in our survey. Now, I, I have to point out, the, the very largest wineries didn't respond to our survey, so they're, they're not included in this. And I, I, I have heard somewhere uh, from the, the county um, comments of, of, you know, a certain number of large wineries representing a large number of visitors. And, and this, this data here kind of support that as well as 4% of respondents uh, are responsible, uh, the, the winery respondents are responsible for 40% of the visitors, at least in this survey. So it's not a straight line. And, and when you think about visitation and you think about the discussion around visitation, um, and you look at a at limiting a, a, a small winery, you know, to a you know a thousand or two thousand or whatever the number you know pick a number. My premise is it's not going to change visitation at all because you have large wineries with existing permits that will draw visitors. So um, I, I see largely that as a, um, a futile exercise if you're actually trying to control visitors by by capping. That's maybe some other reasons you want to do it, but. It's, a, it's an observation that I've made, and, and I know that the county has made it as well in terms of uh, uh, the number of visitors for uh, the larger uh, wineries. So this is a question I ask. This is a new one. I started to ask myself, where do people in Napa County, in the, in the wine clubs, where are we getting the customers? And my belief was that it was actually coming from the Bay Area because the Bay Area is wealthy. You got a lot of people and young people. When you walk around the tasting rooms, you see a lot of young people. Um, and I was surprised when I got this. What this shows is in Napa County is this, this slide over here, is that um, the average Napa Valley winery they're getting about sixty percent, fifty nine percent of their revenue from direct to consumer sales. Um, but the percent of wine clubs that live, that live members that live nearby is only twenty percent. That was really surprising to me because I was, as I was asking around uh, winery owners, I would get numbers generally ranging between 40 to 80 percent. So this was a, this was a big surprise, and what this what this is telling me is that largely uh, the Napa wine clubs, the Napa wineries, are dependent on tourism. 
to a, a, a very high level. Um, and the question we asked is, by the way, is um, what percentage of your wine club ends up uh, coming from more than a one day's drive? So if you're just a day tripper, you're coming in and out, then um, you would fall into this blue category. If, if you're going to have to come in and stay overnight, then you would be the other. So in this case, 80% fall into that other category of got to come in, got to get a hotel, got to stay, got to spend money, pay transit occupancy tax, blah, blah, blah. So um, that's the NAPA. That's the NAPA model, which I thought was fascinating because that's a, that's a, a new discovery for me. And as you look at each of the each each of the other regions, there's different different there's different reasons why they're they're each um, either high or, or a little bit lower in direct revenue and and, and um, the number of, uh, for instance, Virginia, the number of people that live nearby, they, they sell largely to you know uh, people within their state. That's obvious. They don't have a lot of distribution at all. So, a uh, fascinating slide, and, and talks a lot about things you guys have to grapple with in terms of, uh, of tax and uh, and uh, development of um, of the uh, the Napa Valley. Can I ask you a question? Please, on that slide just uh, to look at an, another, you know, analogous region. Paso Robles looks like it has a slightly higher percentage of revenue direct to consumer. Any thoughts on what what that? Do they have more visitation there, or, or they, are they less in the the other markets? They are doing what they can to uh, to spur tourism, but it's uh, Paso is one of those areas where you can't get there from here. You know, it's uh, it's several hours drive from from here from the Bay Area, and, and it's several hours drive from uh, from Los Angeles too. So the, the actual day trip is more difficult mm-hmm. uh, in the same way that uh, the eastern Washington region, you know, that's, that's a long way from Seattle. Um, so the way that you're going to get tourism is by building up your tourism infrastructure and, and, and then actually marketing and attracting in those consumers. And so that's, that's why Paso set that way. Mm-hmm. Okay. Almost done. Are you bored stiff yet? No, no. <laughs> uh, uh, interesting slide that came out this week from uh, the folks at Ship Compliant um, and uh, Wines and Vines is, is uh, again, consistent with that last slide. When, when they track shipments out of Napa to destination states, California represents 32% of, of the market. And, uh, and the rest of, you know, the rest of the, here's other, that's 34%. And you can see the, the different states throughout there. So... This, this tends to verify that, that chart that I just showed you about the fact that we're, you know, we're really selling to tourism, national tourism. It's not really worldwide tourism yet, a little bit, but not, not as much because you, it's really hard to ship direct worldwide. Um, average revenue uh, per club member, app is killing it. You know, we, we are doing the best job. We're the, we're the, the region that all wine in- industry people want to really follow in terms of the, the success that we've had. Um, average monthly visitors per winery. Um, uh, not the biggest in terms of monthly visitors, uh, but we're, we're up in the top, uh, let's call it top quartile. Difficulty in finding tasting room staff. Um, it's hard. It's hard for, for Napa to get tasting room staff. Part of it has to do with, uh, with wages. Uh, but um, a slide that I didn't present, Napa, Napa starting wages are the highest in the industry. Um, so we do have to pay those wages in order to attract decent staff. T- 
typically starting salaries are closer to twenty dollars. So I've heard comments that that we're paying we're creating minimum wage job, and it's that's not true. Um, it's not even true for vineyard workers, by the way. Uh, our vineyard workers are are paid more than that. Uh, so vineyard real estate. Oh, this is a really cool. Look, I did this last night. This. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, oh, that's probably why. Yeah, right? I wouldn't come over the the, the, the interwebs. Yeah, yeah. I just I just found that thing last night. I had to make it. So uh, lots of purchases in real estate, and in fact, right now, if you look at over time. Um, what's what's really happening is the domestic share of, of wine consumption has gone from, I'm going to call it uh, somewhere around 2,000. It was about uh, 12, 13 percent of uh, you know imports. And today that's about 35, 36, 37 percent of consumption is imports. And and what what's really happened is the the amount of of um, uh, planted acreage has more or less flattened. It's gone up since 2001, 0.64%, so effectively zero. And you can see at the bottom the impact of premiumization, San Joaquin Valley, that has largely made these generic wines in the past. Um, the acreage that they've had is has needed to be pulled out because it's just the, it's not sustainable or viable economically. Um, another really interesting program from uh, my good friend Tony Correa, um, uh, he presented this just the other day, and, and I've been looking for something like this. Um, what this is showing is uh, a total tons crushed in Napa Valley over a long period of time. And what, you, what you are seeing is a movement away from the grower model, where you have a grower that, that enters into contracts with the wineries to sell them, and, and, and more into the estate model. Um, and I've been reminded that to uh, remind the audience that estate doesn't mean that it's all contigu contiguous. You can actually um, go out and, and buy fruit elsewhere. But but what we're what we're seeing with the stagecoach purchase of 600 acres, that was the largest continue, contiguous piece, as I understand, in Napa, uh, that's gone to Gallo. And so what that is doing now is it's creating this um, this shortage of of grapes, and we're see we're seeing. Uh, people that used to buy from Stagecoach now trying to go find the next grower to sell. And yet the next grower that that um, is out there that might sell grapes for that winery um, is now, um, you know, thinking about what they're going to do as well. So this is a trend that is going to continue. And it's not that we're going to end up with a total estate valley, but it's it's going to change in the next decade and this this number is going to advance um quite a bit we'll we'll see that more wineries will own vineyards uh, in in 10 years um, than the other way around now um, we're seeing both sonoma county and napa county grape prices spike up like this and when we make it really complex and we look at it over uh primary tertiary secondary um uh, vineyard values. You can see um, on the left side is, is vineyard valuations. The top of that label is 400,000 an acre. And on the right side is, is price per tons, which is 7,000 an acre. Um, and you can see what's happening to, to Cabernet prices over a, a fairly long period of time in the county now. Uh, they're spiking up. They're spiking up hard. And uh, real estate values are matching that as well. Um, 400,000 acres is, is a lot of money. It used to be the rule, the rule of thumb used to be, by the way, on a, on a uh, 
if you look at the, the grape prices, if you paid 2500 for a ton of Cabernet, then you needed to sell that for $25. If you paid you know, 5000 for a ton, um, you needed to sell that for $50. Well, today, contracts are being written for $10,000 $10, plus. This is a lagging indicator. And so we will continue to see this number raise. And so now you're starting to talk about needing to have the average price be more like um, you know, $100 a bottle just to make break even, right? That's a, that's a substantial change when you're talking about averages. It remains to be seen what the, what the, uh, you know, the output of that's going to be. But um, those are very expensive prices for sure. Okay, final uh, comments. Um, Napa wines are, they have a great brand. They're, they're known from consumers around the world and, and nations. As a matter of fact, when you talk to wine people, um, that, or, or the, the average person um, that understands wine at all, when you ask them, you know, do you know Napa? Yes. You know California? Yes. And that's kind of where they stop. Those are the Appalachians. So they go straight from the California or Napa Appalachian to California, but it's the strength of the Napa brand that, that is uh, really important and critical to the success of, of um, this luxury brand. 60% um, effectively are made, sales made direct to consumer. And the only relevant source of club members right now is from the tasting room. And I'm, I'm challenging the wine industry to change that because if you are waiting for just people that can come to even you know even day trippers uh, if it's just day trippers or if it's if it's tourism um, somehow you've got to figure out how to change the experience so that you can take the experience to the consumer versus the other way around um, this is what's got us this far um, is to create this experience um, at the site there's just natural limitations to how far that can and and if you if you as a, a winery owner don't think about the other 49 states you're you're losing a lot of opportunity so uh, today the the infrastructure the the um, software the um, business skills don't really exist yet to, to make that happen but that's that's I believe something that will naturally evolve over the next certainly five years and and then uh, it'll grow from there but somehow we've got to figure out how to actually start to sell on the web and take the experience to the consumer direct. It's not an easy process, and the strength of distribution plays a role into it, and, and legal things play a role into that as well, legal limitations. Uh, vegetation in Napa is skewed to the largest wineries. 80% of Napa club sales are from tourists, but only 21% of the traffic is from tourists. That's uh, from the, the Napa um, County study on traffic. Um, Napa is essentially planted out, so when we start talking about what more can be planted and we start putting um, EIRs on, you know, on hillside uh, plantings, the cost is, is, is pretty prohibitive. Now, when you're starting to talk about the higher cost of acreage that we're dealing with now, you know, maybe there are some small places that can be planted, but really it's, for all intent and purposes, planted out. So that's going to limit the growth of Napa wine in terms of volume. What's happening right now is that people are doing what they call they're seeking margin so if you're paying this much for grapes but you're going to struggle trying to sell it for a price that's going to make the return you want then you start to figure out how much you can blend in from other counties whether that's Lodi whether that's Lake County Sonoma Mendocino whatever or you go to Sonoma and in the, in the case of you look at uh, Sonoma Pinot Noir 
you see the Sonoma Pinot Noir going up. Um, and I think a portion of that has to do with, um, with again, sourcing from, from there, from here. Some of the threats. Uh, harvest and tasting room labor shortages. Uh, roll up of family wineries into larger production wineries. Uh, there's both a, a, a positive and a negative to that. Um, if we lose uh, the character of the family winery um, and we end up being production wineries, we, I do think we lose a, a bit of the authenticity that consumers want. Um, and it's a struggle. So it's, I think protecting the, the brand of Napa is important and, and some of our decisions have to go toward that. Transition from boomers to millennials isn't going to be smooth. European imports are getting mindshare with new consumers. And uh, vineyard land is a, is a, a real concern. The, and the high cost of grapes. And whether or not we can pass that on to consumers over the next five years, assuming a good economy, um, is, is a bit of a question. So we'll, we'll have to see you know, how that give and take ends up going. And that's all that I have. I'll take any of the questions if I have not used all the time. Unless there are no questions, if I bored you, Steph. Are there, no, I, are there any questions? I do have a couple of questions. Go, yeah, too. go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Um, so, I think it's interesting that you point out the um, the labor shortage for hospitality. I mean, we know that there's a labor shortage for um, vineyard workers. Also, um, when you couple the labor shortage for hospitality and the cost of um, running a tasting room, and actually, you know. What's the relative pro profitability of um, hospitality sales, do you think? Yeah, that's a, I haven't done the, the exact math on I do have all, the, all of the data inputs. I need to tell you exactly what that is, but I haven't done the exact math, but I'll tell you what I believe to be true. And, um, uh, and that is that direct sales are probably about the same level of profitability for most wineries as selling through a, a wholesaler. They're about the same. And the, and the reason that they're about the same is if you fully allocate your your gross margins better because you're selling for a lot more than you're selling to the distributor, mm -hmm. but you're, you're fully allocating the overhead of your tasting room and your staff and everything else, and you're selling by the bottle instead of the pallet, um, it, it, the dynamics shift dramatically. So I think it's about even from what I can tell. And I think it's trending toward being more profitable. And as, as the industry learns more about selling direct, it's really new. We haven't been selling direct for very long. It's, uh, for all intent and purposes, I'm gonna say it started in 2010 um, as a real business. Um, and now it's, now it's accelerated. So I think as we get better at it, as we have um, more trained people that actually understand the process, and we're getting there, uh, that, we'll, that will become a more profitable measure. Mm -hmm. Ideally, they, I think most wineries would rather, winery owners, they like, of course, they like being out and doing their thing, I believe. But if somebody would pick up the wine and sell it for them, they would be yeah. glad to do it that way. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a lot less work. Do you think there's a risk to the brand when you've got really small producers doing direct-to-consumer and what ends up in, on the retail shelves and in uh, restaurants are only the large producers? Uh, which brand is threat to what brand? The Napa Valley brand, I guess. Yeah, um, I think the threat to the Napa Valley brand end up, ends up being what happens with. It's not so much that because I think consumers will figure out what's authentic and what's not over time. It's you know we might be talking about twenty percent of consumers that are that are Napa Valley customers. Let's say. Um, I'm more concerned about what happens with 
wineries that are seeking margin that are blending in grapes from elsewhere Um, that's I wonder what what the end of that is I wonder what the end of replanting area that is more suited for Chardonnay into Cabernet you know what does that do for the brand so I think I think we have some work to do as an industry to, to sort through that stuff and certainly sort through um, you know how we evolve to this new consumer. Mm-hmm. But we control what we control and we do control the brand. The industry controls the brand, and that's going to be a something we'll have to work on mm-hmm. as Thank always. You. Thank you. Great presentation. Thank you. I did have a quick question, oh. Commissioner Bassane. Go ahead. Rob, uh, always enjoy your presentations, and this is very. Uh, instructional and, and well uh, thought out. Uh, just in terms of uh, this uh, discussion with regard to the palate de- development of uh, millennials and where that's going uh, and your suggestion that it's evolving into Pinot uh, as being a preference, uh, what does that mean, uh, at least in, in your crystal ball, in terms of the impact on Cabernet sales? Uh, Ten years down the road, and uh, are we going to see more red blends? Are we going to see replantings? Even though, for example, you know, Cab is king here in Napa. Is that going away? Uh, it's it's not going away because we'll always have the wealthy. Um, uh, and you know, when you're selling a hundred dollar bottle of wine, it's that's not an everyday bottle of wine for most people. Um, uh, I think the young consumer is going to do what all consumers do, and that is that they're going to look for value. And value uh, is not just quality over price. It's quality plus experience divided by price. So what we do to provide that experience for a consumer ends up playing into that discussion as well. It's it, Pinot in, in Oregon has a, a very strong value um, proposition. Uh, the young consumers can afford that. If you are, it's one of the things I'm talking to my uh, Napa Valley clients about right now, is if if you are selling wine with a, you know, your starting price is $50, $45, you're well above what that new consumer can take on, unless you're like the guy in that in the picture and, and you can actually borrow your dad's wine, <laughs> you know? Uh, so you're, you're gonna have a hard time getting that new consumer to, to your brand. And so I'm, I'm talking now about what do you do to create an on-ramp? That's what we need to do to sustain our brands. Um, and that's a discussion that I think we, we all have to come to grips with and what exactly that means. Relative to the new consumer, I, I think foreign imports, European imports in particular, are gonna continue to play a big role, as, uh, especially with a strong US dollar, um, as will uh, New Zealand and, and some of the other new, new world wine growing areas. You know, a lot of people make very good wine and um, the boomers, ended up drinking wine that started in the Central Valley of California as the entry point, and we evolved into fighting varietals, and we stayed there. The, the young consumer, I think, is going to uh, have more desire to look at imports because they, they, they like travel. They, the, the world is smaller. And so in my crystal ball, I do worry about, for NAP, I do worry about that component, very expensive, versus the other the others but you know when you're comparing napa to bordeaux and burgundy and as you should maybe it's not maybe it's not a concern thank you commissioner cottrell you had a question thank you chair gill yeah i just wanted to echo my thanks for you being here today um i feel like every time we get to hear you speak 
we we learn something new and and we're all learning together about the evolution of this um, direct to consumer model and, and new aspects of it so can can we book you again for next year of course <laughs> um, uh, so only, I, only if you fix my road in front of my house <laughs> Broadmoor Drive, right, Napa, right. California. Paging Steve Letter. Paging Steve Letter. So I just have, yeah, I, I just had two questions, and I'll throw them out, and then you can um, answer in any order. Um, I one of the um, questions I had was, as you talk about the growth of these different um, uh, price points, um, we were talking about sort of zero to five, zero to fifty, or ten to fifteen. But but I know a lot of what. Um, we as the planning commission see come through the door are operations that are looking at that um, much higher sort of 50 plus 75 plus 100 plus price point and I so I'm interested if you have any data about the growth of those price points and then my second question um, has to do with that statistic about internet sales of uh, that 13 percent of the direct-to-consumer revenue. And I'm wondering if that is, um, again, tasting room sort of generated people who've come to the tasting room and then go home and buy online or if if wineries are finding other ways to bring those people to the online site. Yeah, so the, the, first, the, the last question, I'll take that one first, and the answer is yes, I, I believe that's the case because we're not, we're not as, as, a, as a institution in the wine industry as a whole very good at selling nationally right? we don't we don't have national ad campaigns we're not attracting we're not just running out and, and doing things we're doing we're doing things in pockets where we're having you know AVA associations that run around and they, they do tastings at different so you know we try to get get the PR out there but generally speaking I, I don't think that that's the way that most retailers work that's a component of, of retail sales but actually using big data and targeting consumers you, know, you can go in and get big data now, and you can find out somebody lives in a certain zip code. They take the wine enthusiast, wine spectator, cigar aficionado. You, you know, you know exactly. Or college graduate. You know the kind of people that you might want to attract to your winery. And somehow, in the next five years, we'll have the opportunity, I think, to start outreach. It's not here yet, so we we don't have sales. You know, real internet sales at the winery level yet. Um, and your first question, Ruby. Just about growth of those, um, sort of, I guess, super premium price points. Yeah. So um, uh, bottle price equals grape price equals land price. They all they all trend together. So you can just look at this, those slides and, and you can kind of see what's happening. Right? If you have to buy, if you're buying, uh, you know, grapes at five thousand a ton, you know, and, and again, just the old rule of thumb, it's fifty dollars a bottle. And you can make a, a fair return. It's a competitive market. That's what you're going to get. Um, you know, if you're paying ten thousand, now you're at a hundred. Uh, it's a competitive market. You'd probably rather charge a little bit less, unless you have a very, very special, unique, super luxury label. Um, so, you know, the, the prices, no, no question, are are going up, and they're going up rapidly. And I would, I would, I would say the rate of growth is just like you're you're seeing on the price of grapes in one of those slides. I did have one final question, or for me anyway, just the, and they connect, and I want to drill down a little bit more on what Commissioner Cottrell asked um, regarding. I think that the the assumption may be have been in the past that tasting room sales would drive sales once the visitors return to their home and they saw it on the shelf or they saw it in a restaurant and they would 
purchase it at that point because they had an experience or a connection. Mm. With the advent of the restaurant sales dipping and distributors now not getting those wines placed on retail shelves, um, and there are clearly other there are myriad issues why this is the this is happening. But your percentage of the that you on an early slide the DTC fifty nine percent of average winery sales in Napa is is um, DTC. And in the early 90s, it was around 20%. Right. And so based on these factors that are now starting to come together, like decrease in sales in restaurants and less distribution, how do you see that accelerating from 59%? It's clearly going to be faster than it was between the early 90s and now. Yeah. So what at what point are we... We're at 59% now. So where do you see that headed? So and just to be clear, uh, that that number isn't saying that 59% of all wine sales in Napa are direct. Okay. What it's saying is the average winery, use it as a benchmark for an average winery, the average winery is 59%. Large wineries are going to have less because they're, they're farmer sure. wholesale. Sure. And, and small wineries might be 100%. Um, you know, so, so, you know, where does it actually go? I, I think the, the larger wineries, I'm, I'm surprised how good they're getting it direct. Um, maybe I shouldn't be, but um, uh, given the, their relationship with distribution, I would think that it would be very uncomfortable for them to undercut their distributor. And, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. but they're do, they're doing more and more, and, and they're getting very good at it. Um, and the small wineries, like I said, it's it's critical for their survival to do it. When you go back to the '70s, really, wine clubs. Or not, there weren't really that many wine clubs. Uh, it was more of a just a tasting room, and it was more like, you know, back when I was a young uh, a young kid, Procter and Gamble would put soap and and toothpaste and shampoo and stuff in your mailbox, right? So as a, as a trial. And so going back, that was really the the reason that you had a tasting room. It was so people could try your wines, and then they could go buy them out because it was in distribution. Um, you know, to this day, I think it's difficult, um, you know, let's just use Robert Mondavi Winery as an example. If all of your wines are in distribution, then what good is the wine club, right? Um, it's, it's a, I, I would say there is a, a, something that's good about the wine club. You can still engage with your, can, I have talked to Constellation about this. <laughs> you can still engage with uh, their consumers. They can still have it be part of an integrated marketing strategy, but it's a different strategy from the small winery. The small winery isn't going to be available, mm-hmm. which is why you have wine clubs. Mm-hmm. It's now, yes, they're going to leave, but now that we can actually ship to most of the country, they're actually going to stay in the wine club and have that wine shipped. And, and to the extent they find it on a menu or uh, it actually happens to be in a store, that is part of their database, and it helps. Okay. Thank you. Just what I, I think the, the takeaway message for me is that the old business model is completely cracked and never coming back. Yeah, it's it's just bifurcated. That's yeah. all. Okay. And um, and distribution has a, a role to play in America, and it's an important one. They do build brands for larger wine companies. They they just move bottles for for smaller ones. If you want to get your your wine into a restaurant, and the restaurant's got demand, they can they can go to a distributor and make sure it, it gets there. Um, but it's just a bifurcation of need, and, and obviously, without Granholm Passage, without the the internet, I mean, it's fortuitous for the industry and for consumers that we've had the changes that we've had. Without them, we wouldn't see the kind of 
of uh, opportunity and change that we've seen in the in the growth of the Napa brand. Um, where it goes from here with with no more land to plant, it's going to be interesting. Well, any further questions for Mr. Uh, McMillan? Madam Chair, I just add yeah. the observation I've made previously in that the business model for many businesses is cracked. I mean, the um, uh, you, nobody goes down to the record store anymore. Um, they stream it directly off. And there are no records. And there are no records. <laughs> um, big boxes have crashed continually. Nobody goes down to uh, um, uh, you know, Toys R Us. They just order the toys offline. Um, uh, increasingly, theaters are, are being stretched because people just stream directly movies off, original content off Netflix or Amazon or other places, not even go to the movie theater anymore. Um, it's not just wine. It's a part of a, a, a much larger economic um, shift. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, um, uh, you know, I don't think, I think that um, in that sense, Napa isn't being, the Napa wine industry isn't being, um, uh, it's just doing what everybody, what every other industry in the United States is doing at this point. Evolving. Um, they're evolving. Yeah, yeah it's uh, obviously disruption, internet disruption. You know, when we, when we started the internet boom, and we had, you know, petfoods.com or whatever. Um, back then we decided, you know what? Um, unless you have a retail, let's go back to Toys R Us. And, and then there was, uh, toy, think, toys.com. Toys.com as a, as, a, as a model failed. And, and Toys R Us bought it as their, their uh, direct uh, internet retail channel. Um, now we're going in another interesting direction, though, with um, uh, you know some of the, the recent Amazon's purchase of of uh, Whole Foods, and and um, you know you're seeing Google getting more into brick and mortar. So now we're starting to kind of move back around to figure out exactly where do you need to get with this notion of authenticity and 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 the experience in shopping, and can you actually fulfill all of that online? I think what we're really seeing right now in terms of Amazon, in particular, is a uh, they figured out fulfillment you know it's you can have it there you know sometimes that's the same day in certain cities um, and so that part of it's done and now they're starting to back up into the consumer side and saying you know what do, the, what do those changes look like and I, I just think the wine industry has lagged that and so we still have a, a little bit more way to go to be a little bit more I'm not saying to be like Amazon because we're selling a luxury good and you don't want to be uh, but we do have a way to go on the internet side, for sure. Just uh, one last question here, uh, sure. Rob. Uh, it relates to uh, uh, your world at uh, Silicon Valley Bank, and uh, based on your travels and what you see uh, in the in the pie chart, so to speak, uh, where are you seeing the greatest amount of vineyard development now uh, in terms of the West Coast? And uh, is it... Uh, oh, up in Oregon, Washington, and then what regions and yeah. so forth? Well, um, Europe went through a, a long period of ripping out, because, I mean, we have to look at our competitors. Europe went through a long period of what they call grubbing up, and they've replaced a lot of those vines with uh, higher density, more premium plantings. Um, so they're more, I think, of a threat. Um, certainly, uh, New Zealand, is, uh, has gone through a, a fairly large plant. Marlboro it, itself is mostly planted out. Um, I was there speaking in September. Uh, very interesting to see um, where they are and the opportunities that they have given the price points um, that they present. On the West Coast, it's, it's Oregon and Washington. Um, Oregon and Washington 
you know, instead of for Pinot Noir in Willamette Valley, you're talking about, let's call it $35,000 an acre, um, maybe two tons to the acre instead of, you know, let's call it three or four, or maybe even five in some places up here. Um, but, uh, you know, if you're talking about Sonoma, the cost of, of a Sonoma vineyard, you know, maybe it's 150000 160000 170000 an acre for, for Pinot Noir versus 30 or 40 up in Oregon. That's compelling. Um, and we have the same thing um, if you look in, um, in Washington, in, um, in the Columbia Valley, with, uh, with Bordeaux varieties, the ones that we plant here. And, and so you see, rightfully so, uh, when, since we don't have the ability to grow volume here anymore at all, um, you see a lot of interest in, in growing out um, the acreage in the Columbia Valley, which is inexpensive. It's really good. It's been farmed for a very long time in wheat, uh, so it's not hard to plant. Um, and it's, you know what you're going to get already. It makes, they make very, very good wines. Good wines anywhere. Great. Thank you. Sure. No further questions? Yeah, one more. Sure. Just one more. <laughs> Just one more. You, you guys Everyone were listening. You were listening. You like me. You really like me. Um, so what I just want to make the observation, first of all, about this, I think to Chair Gill and Director Morrison's point that this direct-to-consumer model is um, also, uh, as I said before, evolving, but we're understanding that it's about visitation at the winery site. But... From what you're saying, it needs to be more. Each winery needs to figure out what else it can do online and things like that to make that work. And I think that's a new concept that that some of this is going to happen outside of the valley, hopefully, for each winery to be successful. Yeah, and I, I don't think that's something that that you can legislate or regulate uh, right now. The right. the the management and the the software isn't there to actually do it. It's it will evolve because that's where there's opportunity. That's mm-hmm. business. Um, so it'll happen. Um, you know, the, the, today, uh, you know, the, the kind of wineries that we're going to see approved around here are largely going to be small. And um, I think there's, for you guys, you have a, a tremendous responsibility to figure out what are the right ones to approve. And in some way, we've got to start figuring out, you know, how does that, how does that go into a time when we really don't have any more grapes to plant and when we have... Um, you know, the grapes moving around from the grower to the estate winery. And then, you know, you have these, what are you going to have, an empty winery? You know, you can't find grapes anymore to, to, to do your brand. How do you, you know, how do you sort that out? So um, that's going to be one of, I think, the biggest issues that we have to address in Napa is is this sale of Great. wines, in yeah, of, of vineyard acreage into uh, other wineries instead of being the, the grower. Thank you. Sure. Thank you again, Rob. It's always, again, enlightening and interesting. And I also wanted to mention, if, if it's okay with you, and it, it, I didn't ask you in advance, so it has to be okay, um, going to SV, SV, yes, then yes, svb.com slash wine division, and there's more information, too. And I know you also do a podcast, and you've got some of your interviews online, so this is just a taste of um, the, the kinds of information that we can access as decision makers and as a community with a very local, smart, thoughtful resource. So I just want to make sure that um, folks know to get there and get more information if you're interested.